Philippians 4, 2 through 5 is what we'll be looking at this morning. Verse 2. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask now that you would speak to us. You'd speak to us through your word, that we might rightly apply it to our lives, that it might be planted deep in our hearts and minds so that we would obey you and honor you in the way we relate to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. During this time of year, graduation, is in, graduation season is in full swing. And so we devote time to attending the various graduation open houses. And one of the things that I like to do with them is, is look at the pictures, right? Just look at the pictures on how, how the, uh, the students age, right? And I went to two yesterday or two this weekend already. And it's neat because they have a big display of kindergarten all the way to their senior year. So it's just neat to see how the, how the students have grown and matured and how they've made progress even through the years. Well, it's pretty easy for us to be able to see how we progress and grow in a physical manner. But how do we evaluate spiritual growth or maturity in the Christian life or in the life of a church? Some would say numbers. The size of your church is is an indication that the church is growing and mature. But that's not necessarily the case. Or how many programs the church has. Or what they're doing in the community. Are there any characteristics that identify that someone is growing and is pressing on in maturity? Are there traits of a mature church? And what would those be? Well, this morning, I want to highlight three marks of Christian maturity that should be evident in our own lives and in the life of a church. We'll cover, like I said already, we'll cover three more next week. I was initially planning on on two through nine, but again, I want to do justice to the text. There's so much here. I want to do justice to the text. So we'll spend next week looking at verses six through nine and three more marks of Christian maturity. So this is part one. We know the church in Philippi was dear to Paul. He had seen its progress in the Christian life, and he desired that they would continue to mature. And we we saw his theme verse that that set the trajectory of the letter back in 127. So go ahead and turn back. Turn back to 127, just a few pages back. I, I want us to see this because these themes carry over to these concluding exhortations. So 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that when I, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, now here it is, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
So Paul has been unpacking what this looks like with example after example after example. And now he prepares to conclude his letter. He gives several exhortations which further reveal what this looks like to be mature or to make progress in the gospel. And these, like I've said already, these exhortations have been major themes in the book. But also, Paul draws us to a specific case, an application of the gospel in which unity was threatened in the life of this church. So let's consider these first three marks of Christian maturity. Number one, pursue unity with one another. Pursue unity with one another. So go ahead and turn back to 4, 2, and 3. We see it in verses 2 and 3. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul now addresses a specific problem in this church. There is, a, there is disunity among two ladies within the church. We don't know the precise nature of their disagreement, but there are several observations that we can make here. These women were likely well-known in the church, we know that women in general had a prominent role in Paul's ministry in, in Macedonia and in the church in Philippi. We read about this in Acts 16 with Lydia and the slave girl. However, a conflict arose between two women, Iodia and Syntyche. And their conflict was serious enough that it could disrupt the overall unity within the church. We see this in the fact that Paul actually calls them out by name. Right? So it's a serious issue. And he, he exhorts someone to, to get involved in helping them work out their differences. Now, like I said, we don't know the exact nature, the precise nature of their conflict. But we know it's not a gospel issue. Right? No one's salvation is in question. Paul makes it clear that they have labored side by side with him and other believers in the gospel. And their names are written in the book of life. This would refer to those who would receive eternal life. Lists were often kept to identify those who belong to the people of God. But there is some sort of disagreement among these women. So, so what does Paul actually encourage them to do. He exhorts each of them individually to agree in the Lord. He urges them to pursue unity and peace and reconciliation. Now, this doesn't mean that we are to view or they were to view their differences as insignificant. This doesn't mean that they avoid voicing or discussing their differences. And it doesn't mean that they were to pursue unity at the expense of the truth, as though we just dismiss God's word. Right? That's not what they're to do. When Paul exhorts these women to agree in the Lord, we've actually seen this word in several places throughout the letter. 
in which Paul called the church to be of the same mind or think the same way. It's the same word. Philippians 2.2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Same, same word. Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he, he unpacks the mind of Christ. A humble, sacrificial concern for the well-being of another with the goal of advancing the gospel to the glory of God. That's what we see displayed in Christ's perfect example. That's the mind of Christ. So to agree to, is to be of the same mind, to be of one mind. It would refer then to having this unified mindset, a unified aim and outlook on life, having a shared goal. That's how we, we've understood this. They were to live in harmony because of their shared common salvation in Christ Jesus. They had contended side by side with Paul and other believers, and now something had caused them to lose this common goal, this, to lose their shared mindset. We also observe here that Paul addresses both women. He's not saying one of them is right and the other one's wrong, but that they need to come alongside each other and have the mind of Christ and care for one another. And their conflict, even as they seek reconciliation and peace with one another, isn't just an individual issue. Oh, they'll just deal with their own problems. No. Relational conflict can affect the life of a church. And there are times in which others need to get involved in helping bring unity within the body of Christ. So Paul, in, in verse 3, asks, True companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. True companion is to help or to support and aid these women, which, which could imply that these women are actually in the process of, of working out their differences. Right? They're, he is to support, true companion is to support, to aid. Now, it's unknown who true companion is. Perhaps it's a leader in the church. Perhaps it's one of Paul's missionary ministry partners. Some have suggested Luke. Perhaps it's a reference to the church as a whole. Some have suggested it's a proper name, Syzygus. Syzygus. That's how you transliterate it into to English. Maybe he's a leader in the church. And his name means companion or yoke fellow. If you have, I think NIV says yoke fellow. Loyal yoke fellow. And he, he's called to, to yoke them together in their aim and outlook on life. And I would just add, I, I find this fascinating. I, I shared this with Matthew, wherever he is. I shared this with Matthew this week. Yodia and Syntyche, all right, do you know what their names mean? Success and lucky. All right, so... so Yoke fellow, Syzygus, is to yoke together in agreement, success, and lucky. Isn't that pretty cool? I thought that was pretty cool. We don't know who 
Sisygus is. But what we do know, this, this is what we do know. We knew, do know that, it, this is a, that there is a pursuit of unity, and it's not simply individual, an individual pursuit. It's the call for others, whoever this may be, a call for others to come alongside and help those who differ in their mindset. We are to promote and maintain unity within the body of Christ precisely because of our common salvation and our shared eternity. Their names are written in the book of life. Our names are written in the book of life. They are going to be unified and at peace in the future. So they're to reflect now what will be true of them in the future. So as we apply this to our lives and our church, there will be issues and things that will come up that we won't fully agree on. It's probably not a shocker, is it? We might have differences of opinion. We might have differences of preferences. Now, I'm not going to list all the things that people might have differences over, but here's, some, here's several categories, broad categories. It could be ministry-related Music preferences, pews or chairs, teaching styles. The old one was the color of the carpet. It could be job-related. It could be parenting. It could be politics. It could be education. It could be finances. It could be doctrine. It could be a whole host of, of things. And the bottom line is that we should, we should seek to be like-minded with one another in our aim and direction because of our shared union in Christ. Pursuing unity does not mean that we compromise our beliefs or our conduct or adopt the world's way of thinking. But if our differences lead to disruption or bitterness or arrogance or disrespect for a person, then this needs to be confessed and worked out. To have differences on certain issues doesn't mean that your thoughts and concerns can't be voiced, all right? It doesn't mean that. In fact, they should be. And you should seek to understand the other person's point of view. One of the things I loved in, in, my, in my seminary classes I had a specific professor, and what he would encourage us to do in our systematic theology class, what he encouraged us to do is allow the other person to share their viewpoint. Just hear them out. Listen to them. And even in conversation, allow then, they should allow for you to be able to share your viewpoint on things. Right? So even when you engage with unbelievers, allow them to, to share why they hold to what they do in hope that maybe you can share why you believe what you do. Right? So, so we, what we need to do, even in the, in the life of the church, is to listen to each other and ask the why of our differences. I have often found that just asking why makes a huge difference. Engage in good conversation that considers the thoughts and interests of another. 
Let's examine our own hearts when we view things differently. Let's adopt an attitude and mindset that centers around the gospel and our unity in the gospel and that which upholds the gospel. Let's focus on our unity in Christ and our common goal of advancing the gospel to the glory of God. In fact, let me give you a very practical, real instance of this. All right, so within our own denomination, within the E-free denomination, we are in the process of amending, let me see if I word this right, there's a motion to amend a word in our doctrinal statement, okay, Article 9, and so I'm going to be attending the, uh, the national conference in, in Chicago in June, and I'm personally fully supportive of this, and so what they're doing is they are, they're taking out the word premillennial, so in Article 9 of our Statement of Faith returning, regarding the return of Christ, they're taking out the word premillennial and they're replacing it with glorious. They're going to replace that with glorious. And I am in complete favor of this. Um, all of our statements of faith, articles of faith, all of these statements have something tied to the gospel, even as you work through it, who God is how we view the scripture, how we view our human condition, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the, the, the church and, and our mission. And then it gets the return of Christ and there's one word there that they recognize and I would even recognize, and we even recognize this as I preach through uh, our statement of faith here in our church, that they're going to, what would actually uphold the gospel is to allow for those who hold to other millennial views, right? And who, who, don't, who don't take Revelation 20 the exact same way, all right? So anyway, this is a practical example of, what's, of having a shared vision, a common goal of advancing the gospel, and actually upholding our statement and what we believe, okay? So this is just a very practical, even for me, as I've wrestled through these things. Lord willing, someday I'll preach through Revelation, and we'll get to Revelation 20, and I'll tell you what I think of Revelation 20. So don't ask before then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll tell you in July. All right, number two. Number two. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. So Christian maturity... A mark of Christian maturity is not only unity, but also joy. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 4, right from the text. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. A common theme that we've seen throughout this letter is the call to rejoice, to have joy in the Lord. Paul has modeled this for the church, and he expects it from the church. In chapter 1, he prays with joy because of their partnership in the gospel, in the midst of his own conflict, he's in chains, imprisoned. He rejoices because Christ is proclaimed. He rejoices because the church is praying for him, and, and he's convinced that it will, he will continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith and in the rest of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, his joy is completed through their unity in mind. He rejoices even if his imprisonment ends in death because it completes their sacrificial service to God. 
2, 17 and 18. And then in chapter 3, Paul declares in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And now, as he prepares to conclude the body of his letter, he exhorts the church again in 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. A couple of truths jump out at us here as we consider this call to rejoice. We're not surprised by the emphasis in commanding us to rejoice. We've seen it throughout the letter. But what may surprise us is considering when we should rejoice and for how long. When we should rejoice and for how long? Answer, always. Always, always, always. Typically, I I encourage married couples to be careful using the word always. Right? Never use always. Well, don't use never either. Always, I tell them be careful using this word always because what does it mean? It means always, at all times. The opposite being never. Oftentimes, it is easier to rejoice in the Lord when our circumstances are good. When the sun is shining, we're having success in our jobs, when we're doing well in our classes, when we get promotions, when we're healthy, when we get to see our family, when ministry is going well, when we're receiving encouraging words, maybe on Mother's Day, we rejoice. We rejoice. But how about when circumstances in life are difficult, or you're going through some sort of adversity, or various kinds of trials? How about when it's raining? When we get mistreated at work? When we fail a class? Or we get an A minus? When we are sick or we're diagnosed with a disease? When we receive discouraging words? Or when we don't get to see our family? Or it's Mother's Day. Or how about during the normal, mundane, day-to-day circumstances in life? Do you rejoice in the Lord? We are called to rejoice in the Lord no matter the circumstance. Always rejoice in the Lord. Always. Now, does this mean that you can't feel sorrow or grief? No. Does this mean that you have to be optimistic about everything? Oh, life is just great. No. But there is a sense, even when we consider Paul's example, that he had a proper perspective and outlook on life that finds its contentment and satisfaction in Christ and not in his circumstances. Paul's rejoicing in the Lord occurred in spite of his trials and difficulty. We might think to ourselves, oh, you don't know my circumstance. Paul's was probably worse. Paul's joy was rooted in the Lord and his relationship with him. When you come to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, 
You are called to rejoice in the Lord always. Christians, brothers and sisters, we should be the most joyful people in the world. So are you rejoicing in the Lord in your circumstance? Think about your day-to-day life. What is it that robs you of joy? Sometimes it's because we, we dwell on our circumstance and not on the Lord. And then we're prone to grumble and complain and not rejoice in the Lord. You see, the question that I wrestled with while considering this command to rejoice and, and the emphatic nature of it, twice Paul says rejoice. And he says always. The, the question I wrestled with was this. Why this command here? Why place it after the issue of disagreement and relational conflict in the church? I don't know exactly. I don't know. But I do think it's intentional. And I would suggest that one of the ways to overcome a conflict a relational problem or a difficult circumstance that promotes unity is joy and rejoicing in the Lord. A church that wants to end complaining and grumbling between people and backbiting and dissension and discord and discontentment is a church that finds its joy in the Lord. And that's a maturing church. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. The one whose eyes are fixed on Jesus, who continues to find Jesus as their soul's delight and reward, in spite of all their trials, in spite of all their difficulties, in spite of their differences, will be one who promotes and encourages unity in the body of Christ. And I am convinced that finding joy in the Lord and finding your satisfaction in Jesus in knowing who he is and what he has done for you on the cross, no matter your circumstance, encouraging or challenging, is essential for Christian maturity and for Christian unity. Joy in the Lord is essential, not optional. Number three. And right, so, marks of a Christian maturity. Unity, like-mindedness, joy, Gentleness. Be known for gentleness. There, there are a lot of things that people want to be known for. People might want to be known for their work ethic, their wealth, or their wisdom. Some want to be known for ministry success, or their preaching, or their teaching, or whatever their giftedness is. In Philippi, in, in little Rome, the goal was to ascend the ranks, right? ascend the ranks. We want to be known for status or power. How many of us want to be known for gentleness? Notice verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
This word reasonableness could be translated gentleness. That's how I'm taking it here. The NIV states it like this. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. That, that's the idea that's being communicated here. It, it's the same word that we see in the qualification of an elder in 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. The elder is, to not, not a, is not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Same word. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. We also see it in Titus 3.2. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This word reasonableness or gentleness refers to the way we communicate with others. It carries with it the idea of, of patience, forbearance, and meekness as we relate to other people especially when we're being mistreated or misunderstood. A reasonable or gentle person knows how to handle difficulty and disagreements with maturity. To be gentle or reasonable means that we don't insist on our own rights. It's the opposite of an entitlement. It could refer to a patient willingness to yield when it does not compromise moral principle. One writer, one writer put it like this. He's not telling us to be wimps, but he is telling us to be willing to bend a bit, to not be so brittle or inflexible that people bounce off us like a golf ball on concrete. That's helpful. That's helpful for me. Which again, within the context, we understand its significance when there's disunity or disruption or some sort of conflict in the relationships within the church. Right? So gentle. It makes sense. And how much better and how much more likely is unity in the gospel promoted when we observe the way we communicate with one another? Right? Even thinking about just the way. How do, I, how do I communicate? How do I come across? When we have a gentle, humble spirit We're in a better position to work out our differences. Have you ever thought about that? You have differences with someone. When we have a gentle, humble spirit, we're better prepared to work out our differences and we're more prepared to pursue peace. Let's be known for being gentle, not self-seeking and self-promoting. And the reason for this is given in the next phrase, the Lord is at hand. This could refer to the nearness of Christ in place or in time. In other words, it could refer to the fact that Christ is personally near us in proximity. He is close beside us as though present in the room. Or it could refer to the nearness of Christ's return. James 5, 8, 9, you also, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As we saw in Philippians three twenty, that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So it's possible 
that it refers to the close return of Christ, giving us incentive then to be gentle in the midst of opposition. We're not certain. I tend to lean towards it being a reference to the closeness of Christ. The personal nearness of the presence of Christ. In the midst of a, in the midst of a context concerning relational conflict, Okay, we might be familiar with this verse, but it's in the context of relational conflict within the church. Here's what Jesus promises in Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's in the context of relational issues. Church discipline issues. And Jesus is promising then to, he is close to us. He is present with us. He is near to help us in times of conflict and difficulty. He is near and aware of our actions and thoughts. And this should motivate us to not be self-seeking or self-promoting, but to be gentle as though he were in the room with us. So, as we conclude, as we consider these marks of Christian maturity that are essential in the life of a Christian and and essential in the life of a church. Let's have these qualities about us. Not not to earn God's favor. Not to earn God's favor. Because we have a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we share in a common salvation. Because we have a a common eternity in heaven with him. Let's then pursue unity and like-mindedness with one another. Let's rejoice in the Lord always, and let's be known for gentleness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. As we consider these three marks of Christian maturity, Unity, joy, gentleness. We recognize the the difficulty of carrying them out. And so we do ask for your spirit to work in us. Help us pursue unity. Help us to pursue like-mindedness in our goal and vision and what you would have for us. Help us be filled with joy that we would rejoice in all of our circumstances. Help us be gentle and be known for being gentle in the way we relate to one another, in the way we we relate to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, and to our church body. Help us in this way. Be known for that. For Jesus is humble and gentle. It's in his name we pray. Amen.